like to welcome everyone this morning. If you're watching online or if you're at the Smyrna campus, I'd like to welcome you this morning. Randy's on vacation, so you get me again. Some of you thought, dang it. <laughs> if I'd have known, I could have taken an extra day off or something. No, no, I'm just glad you guys are here. I really am. We are continuing our series on the book of James. Uh, although today is not a uh, what you would call a 4th of July or a freedom sermon, if you will. Uh, it does have a lot to do with um, attitude. It has a lot to do with our personal journey, our personal growth. And I believe everything and anything that we read in Scripture that can benefit us and benefit our walk on, our daily, on a daily basis is going to be beneficial uh, in every phase of our lives. And so I want you guys to please just keep that in mind as we talk about controlling ambition. And even controlling ambition, some of us, with humility. Now, some of you may remember Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong was um, a pretty good bicyclist, if you will. He was on the tour. Uh, he won the coveted Tour de France seven years in a row. And then having it all fall away after he decided to take performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, the worst part of it all is that Armstrong was a hero to many, especially uh, after he fought and beat testicular cancer in 1997. Uh, and then he started his own charity called Live Strong. Some of you may have worn or maybe still wear the Live Strong bracelets, the yellow. He always had the bright yellow bracelets and the bright yellow shirts that said Live Strong. Uh, and then in 2012, the United States Anti-Doping Agency came out with a report on Armstrong, who had already been found to be not only taking performance-enhancing drugs, but the so-called ringleader of the doping scandal. Now, Armstrong denied the charges and never admitted to what extent of, a drug, of his drug usage. But he was banned for life, not just from bicycling, but from any competitive sport, and stripped of all his titles after 1998. The release of the report was bad enough that all his sponsors dumped him. They estimated that he lost $75 million in one day. And his very own charity dropped him. Lance Armstrong had great ambition, but ended up letting that ambition turn him into something else and someone else. And we're going to talk today about controlling our ambition because it's very important. And you'll understand as we go. We're going to be reading from, of course, the book of James, starting with chapter 4, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles or your your phones or whatever you're using, please turn over there to chapter 4, starting with verse 1. It says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, when ambition is out of control, it can cause havoc and irreparable damage to you or a business or even a country. Uh, but when ambition is under control, it becomes a dynamic force for positive achievement. Now, I believe that there, there are people in this very room that obviously have a lot of ambition. We have ambitious people here today, and there's nothing wrong with that. Some of you have been driven to succeed all your lives. You are goal-oriented, highly motivated, A-type personalities. Some of you have been so consumed by ambition, though, that you've never stopped to evaluate what it is doing to yourself and what it might be doing to others. It is just a way of life for you. But it is very easy in this success-oriented culture to sacrifice our integrity our families, and even our health in order to be at the top among our competitors. Now, this is a real danger that we all face every day of our lives. So how can we be ambitious and still maintain a spiritual balance, which is what it's all about? How can we develop the gifts that God has given us and use it to the fullest, if you will, and yet prevent worldly desires from dominating us and possibly hurting others? Now, we must find this way, this, this balance, if you will, to master our ambitions. Now, if you remember, those of you that were here last week to hear Randy's sermon, he actually mentioned in chapter 3 
the word selfish ambition. And if you remember, the word selfish ambition came along with earthly wisdom. Now, earthly wisdom, it didn't just say that it was just bad to have earthly wisdom. It said if you, are, if you have selfish ambition, that it, was, it causes havoc and, and disorder and every kind of evil scheme. So you don't want to have that kind of attached to you, especially as a Christian. But I think it must first start, if you will, if you go into your first part on your outline there, if you want to try to do a better job of mastering or dominating, if you will, those, those ambitions that we have, I think it must first start with acknowledging the reality of inner desires. We all have some ambition for something within us, everybody. It may be something small, something great, but we all have some type of ambition in our lives. James calls them desires that battle within. Now, some of us uh, may be ambitious, if you will, for possessions. We have a desire for a comfortable home, a nice car, which, again, nothing wrong with these things. We would like to own a boat or even have a vacation home. We want to dress nicely or at least have enough resources so that we don't have to worry about anything. Maybe some of you have a goal to be a millionaire by the time you're 30. Nothing wrong with that. Now, some of us are ambitious for pleasure. We don't necessarily want to be rich. We just want to be happy or even have a good time. Maybe your goal is to get married or to have children or to have a happy family. You would be satisfied with just the simple pleasures of life. I want the freedom to go golfing or go skiing or eat out at my favorite restaurant in Ireland if I want to. That's okay. Those are good goals. Some of us are ambitious toward influence or even power. We don't care if we're rich. We're not necessarily driven towards pleasure. We want to be esteemed. We want, to, we want people to respect us. Not just because of who we are, but, but because of our achievement. Things like she owns her own company. He's the leading scorer in the county. She has her doctorate. He speaks in front of thousands of people. He dates the prettiest girl in school. There was a story told of a high school coach who was upstairs shaving at home. A pretty, pretty well-known coach in the area. Uh, and his wife calls him and says, Honey, you need to hurry up and come down here. ESPN's on the phone. Well, the coach, Nick, you know, nicks himself trying to stop shaving. And as he tries to hurry up and get off the phone, he goes down the stairs, rushes down the stairs, trips over the last two steps, runs into the wall. You know, finally, after he gets composing himself a little bit, he gets on the phone. He's ready to talk to ESPN. And the voice on the other end says, congratulations for you just got a $2 a month subscription to ESPN magazine. <coughs> Excuse me. We are ambitious for influence. We want to be esteemed to the point that we may even do ridiculous things sometimes. But it is also important to understand that these inner desires are not evil in themselves. We, we always have a tendency to talk about these, these, these battles that we have within us, but these battles within us are not always bad. They sometimes produce good things. They just need to be harnessed. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a book called Ride the Wild Horses by J. Wallace Hamilton. And in this book, the wild horses that he was referring to are those untamed impulses of human nature. He asked, what do you do when the wild horses of human instinct? What do you do with those? He said, the desires that beat within the heart of every person. He said that out west, when a cowboy got a hold of a wild stallion, he had one of three options. First, he could shoot the horse and walk. Sometimes people's ideas of ambition are self-negation. 
they really don't uh, have any desire at all. Second, the cowboy could just let the horse go wild and then try to tame it. Some people's idea as to what to do with the desires from within is self-indulgence. It feels good, so just do it. And then there is the third option. An experienced cowboy knows that he should take the horse, tame it, and then ride it. And the stronger the horse's instincts are, the stronger the potential for achievement. So the Christian life is not self-indulgent. It's not self-negation. It is self-control. It is not wrong to want possessions. As a matter of fact, it's that instinct that motivates us to want to provide for our families and still have enough to give away. But the desire for possessions needs to be harnessed or it will destroy us. It's not sinful to desire pleasure. The desire for sexual pleasure is one of the primary reasons for getting married. But you know that the desire has to be controlled or it too can consume us. It's not even wrong to, be, to want to be powerful or influential. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, If anyone sets his heart on being overseer, his desire is a noble task. If nobody wanted to have influence, there would be no leaders in the church. There would be no leaders in the community. But the love of power has to be harnessed or it can ruin us and others. You see, those are instincts placed within our hearts by God for our benefit. But those wild horses have to be tamed or they will destroy. A good example of this is in the Bible is Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul was so ambitious for power that he wanted to be a rising political star in Judaism. Most of us know the story, but Saul was so, uh, so bad at it, or so good at it, if you will, uh, at being ambitious for what he wanted to do, even to the point of persecuting and killing Christians. And when he ran out of Christians in Jerusalem, he began to go to the other cities to arrest them. But God broke Saul's pride. God blinded him and showed him that he was wrong. And Saul, who changed his name to Paul, wrote later on in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. But Paul's desires were negated. They were redirected, if you will. Paul became very ambitious as a missionary. He wanted to win the whole world for Christ. Not a bad, not a bad goal in life, is it? He even described himself a fool for Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, he says, whatever you do, it doesn't say some of the things you do, it says whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. <coughs> the second thing we need to do is we also need to acknowledge the dangers of ambition. James chapter 4 talks about some of the hazards of inner desire. Uncontrolled ambition, first of all, causes conflict among people. This is no secret. Where does, the Bible says, where do quarrels come from? Where do wars come from? They come from these desires that battle within us. Why do you think we have a military presence in a lot of the places around the world? I think that it might be that they need to be there to keep the people who don't like us from getting a little too ambitious. International conflicts are started by individuals who are conflicted by their own inner desires. <coughs> Most of the time, these individuals are in leadership, unfortunately. This is also the reason that we struggle with other people. There was a story that Abraham Lincoln would tell. <coughs> Y'all, excuse me, man, I got this little tickle on my throat. It just will not go away. 
there was a story that Abraham Lincoln would tell about his two sons who were quarreling. This is a perfect example. He was asked what his two sons were fighting about. Oh, bless you, my son. <laughs> Thank you. I was ambitious for water, and somebody knew that desire, that inner battle was going on. <laughs> People in Smyrna are going, what are we getting? <laughs> Abraham Lincoln told a story of his two sons who were quarreling. And somebody asked him, what was his two sons quarreling about? Abraham Lincoln said the same thing that is wrong with this world. He said, I've got three walnuts and both my boys want two. So many of our ambitions depend upon the denial of someone else. I mean, think about this. In order for me to succeed, in most cases in life, somebody else has to fail. In order for the Toronto Raptors to win an NBA title, Golden State had to lose. In order for you to be number one, somebody else has to be number two. In order for you to get ahead, somebody else has to fail, and that can cause conflict. Now, that's not in every situation, but in a lot of situations. And this not only happens in the world, but it actually happens in the church. Bob Russell tells of a story where he went to preach at a church who was having a revival. One elder in his family sat in the middle of the church, and when the church was over, they would leave out the middle door, out the side of the door. Another elder and his family sat in the back, and when church was over, they made their way out the back door so they didn't have to see each other or, or have conversation or anything like that. They were just very upset with each other. And it was crazy. And this conflict between the two families caused division, and it was killing that church. Now, the source of the dispute? The elder who coached the church softball team had benched the son of the other elder. What causes quarrels? Is it not the inner desire for esteem and position, even position on a softball team? James chapter 4, verse 2. says, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. It's those inner desires that battle within us. These uncontrolled desires not only cause conflict with others, but it can cause conflict within ourselves, within myself. James is talking about those battles that are in us. You know, uh, that you're supposed to love people, but when you don't, you feel guilty. Because not just that you didn't love them, but you, took it, you might have even taken advantage of them. And it's those feelings that cause the battle within. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, We are to abstain from evil desires that war against your soul. And Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says, The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. And they are in conflict with one another. So as they say, the struggle is real. Even if you don't struggle with your conscience, uncontrolled ambition can create a lack of peace because no matter what you achieve, it's never enough. Anytime you see a team in a world championship, win a world championship, it, it could be either right after the game or it could be a couple of days later. What do you usually hear them say? They announce that they are going to win it again next year. They're so fired up and ready to go. Now, this is not all bad, generally speaking, because of our desire, if you will, to stay on top. But if worldly ambitions are not controlled, they create inner dissatisfaction. I know I just won, 
or I know I was at the top, I know I was the top salesman, or I know I was the best at a particular achievement, but it's not enough. I have no contentment. I can't enjoy my present accomplishment because I'm already thinking about tomorrow. Author Warren Wiersbe wrote that people who are at war within themselves are always unhappy people. Do you know anybody like this? They never really enjoy life. Instead, uh, they're always looking for something magical that will help change their lives. The next best thing. So the dangers of ambition include conflict with others and the conflicts that I have within myself. But the greatest danger of uncontrolled ambition is it creates conflict with God. At the end of verse 2, it says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Do you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying that you're not praying. You're not talking to God. Your desires are not being met, legitimate desires, because, first of all, you're not talking to God about it. You're relying on other people, other things, other situations. You have not because you do not ask God. We get so caught up in our worldly achievements that our spiritual life is forgotten or even pushed aside. And then when we do pray, our prayers become more selfish. Verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with what? The wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We ask things like, Lord, if you would just let me win the lottery, I promise to give you a huge amount to the church and only keep a measly million or two for myself. We're not praying for God's will to be done. We are praying for God to fulfill our earthly desires. And when God doesn't respond, what do we do? We get mad. We get angry. And this is where we really need to be careful as the people of God. Verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is what? Hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy to God. Do you guys realize what that is saying? That's just one simple little verse, but it is probably one of the most powerful verses you could ever read in Scripture. Because it is literally saying that when you choose to become a friend to the ways of this world, not just the world, we can, it's a nice little church where we say the world, but the ways of this world, the culture of the world, the things that this world loves to do that are contrary to God's word. When we become friends to that, we are saying that we are enemies to God. Now, how are you saying it? You're not going, well, I'm an enemy of God. I'm just going to walk around. I'm, God's my enemy. No, your actions speak louder than your words. Your life does not display true Christianity and true faithfulness, if you will, to God. So it's interesting. I love the language here because the language that used here is perfect for the church because the church is what? The bride of Christ. And so when we become a friend to the world, what have we done? We've broken our vow to God. We have broken that vow. And, and we are unfaithful. And I want you to remember something. Early on in Scripture, God says, I'm a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Verse 5 says, do you, do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? Amy and I recently celebrated our 27th anniversary back in May. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Most of y'all were clapping for Amy. I get it. She, she survived 27 years. But on our 25th anniversary, we had the opportunity, thanks to her great salesmanship with her company, we, we in part won a trip to Hawaii. So we actually turned it into our you know, 25th anniversary, yay. Got to go there. Now, think about it. While what we were able to do as part of the, if you want to call it anniversary, we got to update her ring, her diamond ring, which was awesome. She'd been wanting a, an update for her ring a long time. Now, when I, we got engaged, I was making $150 a week. So I was, I was doing great. How she, I don't know how she married me, but I guess she saw potential. I don't know. But imagine after a nice dinner, sitting on a beach in Hawaii, and I bring out the ring and I show her, and, and instead of giving it to her, I say, this is a really nice ring, isn't it? <laughs> but you know what? I got it for our church secretary. Because, you know, the church secretary is an unsung hero. She goes, you know, nobody knows all the work that she does. And so just to honor her and the work that she does, I'm going to give this diamond ring to the church secretary. Sitting on a beach in Hawaii. Some of y'all got that thing on in your head. You know what would happen. Now, obviously, what do you think Amy's reaction would be? I, I don't think she would say, well, you know, that is so thoughtful of you, dear. That's one of the, one of the million reasons why I married you. <laughs> no, I, I would have to find my own way back home and be forever in the doghouse. That would be the, the, the reality of that. But there is a normal, if you will, a normal jealousy that we have uh, and, and, and exists in this verse, in verse 5. God loves us intensely so that when we flirt with the world, God gets angry and jealous. Because that's what we're doing. We are actually ignoring our first and true love for something else. We're breaking our vow. 2 Timothy 4.10. There's a mention of a co-worker of Paul named Demas. And Paul said, Demas has deserted me because he loves the world. That is why 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting about what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from where? The world. The world and its desires pass away, people. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. So the question we really come to is this. How do we develop control over our ambitions? Through these passages in James, I want to show you three suggestions that will help us ride the wild horses in our lives. Remember, the wild horses are those untamed impulses of human nature. The first thing I think we can do is first decide what you want out of life. Make a decision and have no regrets. Verse 4 says that anyone who becomes a friend of the world is an enemy of God, but we don't become friends right away. It's something that happens gradually. Someone once pointed out this. First, there's friendship with the world, James chapter 4, verse 4, that results from being polluted by the world, 
James chapter 1, verse 27. And then we become conformed with the world, Romans 12, chapter 2. And then the sad result is being condemned with the world, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. We just seem to gradually buy into the values of this world, and then we involve ourselves with the church to some degree, and then we become what James 4, 8 says. We become double-minded. One part of us wants to, what God wants, but the other half wants what the world wants. And that's really unfortunate. Vance Hobner uh, spoke of a lukewarm Christian who had just enough religion to feel miserable at a bar, but not enough to be happy at a prayer meeting. And this is what we become, double-minded. And this is why we need to decide what we really want. What do you really want out of life? Do we want the possessions of this world? Do we want the pleasures and the influence of this world? Then you go and get it. You become the best materialist, hedonist, or social giant that there is. But then I want you to be honest with yourself and the church because there is a likelihood that you will drop out of church. And at least, or at the very least, slowly fade out. Because there's a a double-minded thing that happens amongst Christians that is exhausting. And it will spiritually wear you out. And quite frankly, you would be an embarrassment to the kingdom of God anyway. Doesn't mean there's not forgiveness. Doesn't mean you can't change. But it's the people that decide that there's nothing wrong with it. It's the people that don't care if people know. It's the people that think that their way is better than God's way. These are the people that we're talking to. The ones that are continuously trying to strive to do better, that know that they're doing wrong and striving to do something different, these are the people that are, that are not the embarrassment. It's the ones that think that they know what they're talking about that really don't. Those are the embarrassing parts of the kingdom of God. Our job is to make disciples. You can't make disciples like that. That is why in Revelation it says to be hot or cold, not lukewarm, or God will do what? He will spit you out of his mouth. And quite frankly, you you know that what what else happens is, um, but there's a better decision that we can make as opposed to being double-minded. Because, you know, it's embarrassing especially when you live in a world where it seems like the pagans who make no pretense of being Christian are having a more fulfilling and happy life than those of us who are living a double-minded life. But like I said, there is a better decision that leads to a better way, and that is making the irrevocable decision that you want more than anything else to follow Jesus Christ. And then you don't look back imperfections and all because that is who you want to be and that is where you really and that's what you really want. Joshua tells us the Israelites he told the Israelites if you will to make a choice of whose side that they were that they wanted to be on. Joshua 24 says, "Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness." Throw away the gods, little G-O-D, throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then you choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And if you're going to control your ambitions, you have to make that decision to follow Jesus and then no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. Decide what you really want in life. And then secondly, deepen in your spiritual relationships. 
living in this success-oriented culture, if you're, if you're going to have the Lord's values, then it cannot be a one-time decision. It has to be a constant deepening process in your life, a daily thing. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The world says, be proud of who you are and show great esteem over your accomplishments. But God says to be humble about who you are. God doesn't want you to be humble because he's a tyrant and wants to hold us down. It's because he wants us to be teachable. And when we humble ourselves, it allows us to open, to deepen ourselves into a better understanding of God. Will we ever truly understand fully God? No. Nobody's that good. Dr. Bill Colson, an esteemed educator, tells of a test that was given to children from six different countries. It was to determine their math skills. I obviously would never be in that test. The Americans and French-Canadian students were at the bottom. The Koreans finished at the top. Now, here's the amazing part. Only 23% of the Koreans felt that they were adequate in math. 67% of the Americans thought that they were wonderful mathematicians. The Americans were the highest in self-esteem, but they were the lowest in performance. Which of the two groups are going to strive to do better? We don't need to come before God with confidence or arrogance, but rather with the understanding that we need Him. Verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and what will he do from you? He will flee. But you first have some work to do. You have to do the resisting. God is in charge, not me. This verse puts God in the proper place. It puts God in charge. We sometimes have problems with that. We think, yeah, we love God. We know he's the best. You know, he knows me better than anybody. But in this relationship, I think I might know it a little bit better. Or in this situation, I think God doesn't quite understand what's going on. Really? We always like to keep a little bit of control on ourselves, no matter what it is. To truly submit yourself to God, you have to let go of all that stuff. You have to let God be in total control of your life. The devil is doing what he does. He's doing what he does best. He is trying to make the world look more appealing. He wants it to look beautiful to you. Look at all those possessions. You need that. Look at all the pleasure and power that is out there. You really want that. But if you resist the devil, he will flee. C.S. Lewis wrote, the devil is not the antithesis of God. He is the opposite of an angel. How do you draw near to God? It's a continuous process. You worship regularly. You have your personal devotions regularly. You talk to God regularly. It's a continuous process. The rest of verse 8 says this, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Washing is, is in a symbolic act of an outward change. The purifying of the heart is the change that comes from within. Verse 9 says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. I love this part of the scripture because it's kind of confusing, but when you think about it, it's really not. So I'm going to help explain a little bit. Verse 9 says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning. Shouldn't it be mourning to laughter? 
Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, this seems really backwards, but I want you to understand something. If you're deepening in our relationships with God, sometimes your deepening has to come through tears. Before there is rejoicing, there is repentance. Before the resurrection, there was the cross. And before you have the right to rejoice and celebrate as a Christian, you must repent of your sins. Telling God how sorry you are for finding ways to gratify your ambitions. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they would be comforted. But before there is joy, before there is comfort, there has to be a time of mourning. If you've allowed the worldly value system to be your system, you have run over people, you have hurt your family, you have hurt yourself, you have basically put God on the back burner, then you, the place you need to be is a place of grieving and mourning and weeping. And just tell God how you have messed up. So decide what you want out of life, deepen in those spiritual relationships. And finally, the third way to develop control over our ambition is to delight in God's ultimate approval. Look over at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I can tell you from experience that if you will not humble yourselves, God has a wonderful way of humbling you himself. Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about. You need to ask yourself this question. Who are you trying to please? Why are you working so hard to accumulate so much more things, more status, more power? Are you trying to impress your enemies? Is it really worth it? To do all that in spite of them when they could just care less about you? Are you trying to impress people that don't even know you? They may know you for a time, but eventually they'll forget you. Are you trying to impress your family and friends? Now, if they genuinely love you, they're going to be there whether you are successful or not. Maybe you're trying to prove something to yourself. The only way that you think you have self-worth self -worth is doing more this year than what you did last year. Maybe what you should be asking is whose approval really matters. The Bible tells us of the rich fool who had to tear down his barns to make bigger ones because of how much crop he had brought in. And then he bragged to himself how much he had. But God said, you fool, tonight you're going to die. Then what? Because one day we are all going to stand before our creator at the judgment seat. And the only thing that is going to matter at that time is what God thinks of us. And do you think God is going to be impressed with titles, degrees, popularity and sizes of our bank accounts? What is going, what is going to matter is did you know Jesus Christ? Humble yourselves before God and he will lift. Another translation is he will exalt he will lift, exalt you up. Verse 13 says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, it is the Lord's will we live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. The more you deepen your relationship to God, the more sensitive you are to those things that please God. 
and that will be the thing that pleases you regardless of how the world thinks or looks. Max Licata wrote a book called The Applause of Heaven. And in it associates the wonderful quote we all long to hear when we get to heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know about you, I long for that. With a picture of God, now in the book, it's a picture of God standing in applause in response to our faithfulness. Do you seek the applause of man or the applause of heaven? Do you really want to control your ambitions? Don't ignore they exist, but don't let them run wild either. Put them under the subjection of Jesus Christ so that he could use them. And then you make the decision that that is the most important thing in your life. And you have no regrets. But then you work hard at deepening your relationship with God to the point that the world just doesn't matter anymore. Wouldn't that be awesome? And then when all is said and done, delight in God's approval of your life as he stands and applauds over your faithfulness. Locator wrote also, would you really rather have a few possessions on earth than eternal possessions in heaven? Would you really choose a life of slavery to passion over a life of freedom? Would you honestly give up all your heavenly mansions for a second-rate sleazy motel on earth? That's the kind of choice, believe it or not, that you have to make every day of your life. So I pray that together we can choose wisely. Father God, I just want to thank you again for the blessings you give us each and every day. And God, I know that as last week when we talked about wisdom, I know that in part that this is what's going to take for us to, to truly take control over our ambitions. God, I pray for direction. I pray for peace. But I also pray for discernment, Lord, so that we make the right kind of decision when it comes to our ambition. We don't want to become selfish ambition people because we know that that creates, creates disorder and havoc. But God, help us to have the discernment to know the right way by having this relationship with you deepening, by, by knowing that we can, can do better and that we always strive to do better as Christians and live for you. I pray that if there's anyone here today, Father, that it does not know you, that they want to make you Lord of their life, that they will make that decision. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. To accept your grace, God, is what they need to know and to accept you as our personal Lord and Savior. I thank you for the blessings you give us each and every day, and I pray for each and every one of these individuals as they leave here today, that they don't leave because it's just time for church to be over, but that they understand that when they leave these doors, that the ministry begins in Jesus' name. Amen.